Thank you, Blake. Oh, we live on the faithfulness of God. Amen. The faithfulness of God, not our faithfulness to God, but the faithfulness of God to us. Here, Glenn got baptized today, and sometimes when I meet with people who are going to be baptized, I make that point. This baptism isn't about your commitment to Jesus Christ. This baptism is about Jesus Christ's commitment to you. God is faithful. In fact, the Bible says he remains faithful even when we're not. Though we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's good news. And it's good seeing everyone here this morning. So glad that you're here. So glad all of you are, who are online or uh, logged in as well. We are mindful that you're there and we're grateful that you're there. And it's been a good time of worship. Uh, one screen, I know, just one screen. So if you sat over there, you picked the wrong side. Sorry about it. Like I told folks in the last service, how am I supposed to preach? How did the Apostle Paul preach without two screens behind him? <laughs> I've got one screen. How is that supposed to work? So you can see the progress we're making. You know, the sound is still a little bit echoey in here, but if you sat on this side, you actually have some sound treatment. Maybe it's a little, it's a little better over there, Blake? It's great, huh? Okay. Now listen, Blake is preaching next week. So I want you to come... And I want you to take notes and everything he does wrong. I want you to write it down, send him an email, and just tell him this is what you need to work on, Blake. Does that sound good? Okay. I've got in my hand something that Blake has written. It is a devotional for Advent. Now, if you've been around a little while, you know that we've been working through the book of Matthew, and we're going to finish that book next week. And it's been a tremendous study, but we're going to now move into the Advent season. And we have Bible reading journals that we typically use, and we're, but we're going to delay that till January. We're going to go back to that. The second week in January, we're going to start studying the prophet Samuel. So that'll take us through a large portion of the book of 1 Samuel. But during Advent, we want to focus right on the season. So our life groups are doing that. And Blake has written this devotional. There's an entry for every single day of Advent. And then, yes, the 12 days of Christmas. So it takes you all the way into the new year. Now, we're going to have these next week. Some of you are going to be leaving pretty soon to go home. You know, you're maybe at school and, and you're going to be heading out. I want you to get one before you go. It is really, really Good. I know you don't think that because you saw him wearing that costume and you're thinking <laughs> there's no way that could be any good. It really is good. Um, his office is right next to mine, and uh, no, that rumor is not true. He didn't wear the costume as he was writing on it, so, so that's okay. So it, it's good, man, and I'm excited about it. This is just the mock-up version, but we'll have the, the main thing come next week, so I hope that you'll You'll make a point of getting that. You know, a lot of times our lives feel messed up and, and we think, I've really got to get more faithful to God. And let's face it, we want to be faithful to God, no question about it. But it's God's faithfulness to us that enables us to be faithful to him. It's always first God, which is just to say it's always first grace. And it's always grace in that even our works 
flow out of God's grace. That's something so important to remember, and we're going to see that clearly in the passage that we're going to read about today, or read today. It's, it's just, it's quite a passage because it's Jesus standing before Pilate, and he is released to be flogged and then crucified. And you find in this scene that people turn against him in ways that you never could have predicted, and that reveals something about the human condition. Sometimes theologians talk about radical evil. In fact, not just theologians. If you do any study of philosophy, you may have heard of the word Immanuel Kant, no theologian, but he was driven to this idea of radical evil because he said you just can't root it out. Evil goes deep into the human heart, to the very root of the human heart. And that's why there's no hope for us apart from the grace of God. But there is grace. And so in the passage we're going to look at today, you see radical evil, but it points us to radical grace as well. So let's go ahead and read that passage. It's in Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. It says, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and our children. Then they released Barabbas, or he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. We saw last week that Jesus was in the house of the high priest. He stood before Caiaphas. The whole Sanhedrin had gathered, and they condemned Jesus as a blasphemer. They condemned him because he claimed not just to be the Messiah, 
but to be the Lord of lords, the son of man who comes into the glory of the Father in heaven and sits at his right hand where he rules and reigns from heaven. That was to claim the prerogatives of God for himself. That was intolerable. He is a blasphemer, said Caiaphas. We need no more witnesses. And everyone gathered said he's worthy of death. But the Romans don't care about theological issues. They don't care what religious controversies the Jews are having. That's irrelevant to them. But they do care about one thing, and that is order. Caesar is the high power, and no one is allowed to challenge the power of Caesar. Well, these religious authorities, they know that. So they don't come to Pilate with, oh, he's a blasphemer. They come to Pilate with, he says he's Messiah. That's a king, Pilate. This is a man who's claiming to be king of Israel. Now, that's a charge that Pilate has to listen to. It can't get back to Rome that he's ignoring that this man has risen up who claims to be a king. In fact, in another gospel, we're told that the religious authorities reminded Pilate about that. They said, hey, he claims to be king. Caesar's not going to like it if he finds out there's someone who claims to be king and you don't do anything about it. See, these authorities decided Jesus had to die. They didn't have the right to kill him. They bring him to Pilate and they trump up this charge. Well, Pilate knows this is, this is empty. He knows there's no substance to these charges. So he thinks Jesus will instantly refute them. It would be so easy. But Jesus remains silent, and Pilate is astonished. During the proceedings, he gets a note from his wife. In it, she says, to have nothing to do with this man. He is innocent. I suffered terribly in a dream because of him. Somehow in that dream, she became aware that something horrible was about to happen. It's like, it's like this good creation suddenly is being rent. Something obscene is taking place. It says, I have nothing to do with him. With this innocent, literally in the Greek, this righteous man. Well, Pilate tries to get Jesus off, not because Pilate's a good man. History tells us about Pilate. He was not a good man. He was angry. He was arrogant. He was cruel. He was not a man who cared about justice. He just wanted to make sure that everybody was pacified and that things functioned as they ought because his position depended on it. Nevertheless, he doesn't care about this Jesus, doesn't care about Jesus and rights and justice and all the rest. He doesn't care about his accusers. He's just trying to make the problem go away. So he thinks, well, I can make it go away. I've heard about this Jesus. He came into Jerusalem just a week ago, and the crowds thronged him. Believe me, Pilate knew about that. So he's thinking, I can deal with this by offering him to the people. He had this custom. Here at the Passover, he'd release one prisoner to the people. Well, I'll release Jesus. They had come, gathered on that morning, waiting to have their prisoner released to them. Evidently, they had already anticipated this man, Jesus Barabbas, but now Pilate offers them another Jesus. He says, Jesus, who's called Messiah, who would you like, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the one who is called Messiah. 
It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Jesus Barabbas, Jesus Messiah. That's the choice. Now, by the way, some of your translations won't say Jesus Barabbas. They'll say Barabbas. That's because not all Greek manuscripts that we get our English Bible from have the name Jesus. But scholars are almost unanimously agreed that's because some pious monks, when copying the manuscripts, didn't think it was right to give the name Jesus to this evil, wicked man. In fact, there's a church father named Origen who said, it's in the text, but it can't be legitimate. It can't be original because, well, we could never have an impious man with the name Jesus. That just wouldn't be fitting. And so that was the psychology that took it out. But Matthew wants it in there because that's the choice. The people are given a choice between two men named Jesus. Now, this man Jesus is called Jesus Barabbas. That name means son of the father. When you see that bar in front of a name, it means son of. So like you have in the New Testament, Bartimaeus, that means son of Timaeus. Um, when a young boy is, reaches 13, he has his bar mitzvah. He becomes a son of the commandment. We do something like this in English. Uh, one time when first people are saying, my name's Johnson, that means son of John. And so here with Bartimaeus, or excuse me, with Barabbas, it is son of Abba. Now, some men at this time were named Abba. So it's possible his father was named that. Or it's actually possible he was the son of a rabbi because rabbis were often called Abba. But I think what's in Matthew's mind is that parallel with Jesus because here is Jesus, son of the father, and then here is Jesus that Peter had confessed is Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus, Son of the Father, Jesus, Son, true Son of the Heavenly Father. And here you make your choice. Well, Barabbas was a popular man. Some translations say he was notorious, but others translate it notable because the Greek is ambiguous. The fact is, this man, Barabbas, was a popular man because he was something of a freedom fighter. He's what some might call an insurrectionist. He saw the world very clearly as Rome oppressing Israel. Israel must fight back. It, the Bible says he was a murderer, but it wasn't that he was just, you know, murdering anybody in general. He was fighting for Israel's freedom. And likely he killed somebody in pursuant to that goal. And so he was popular with the people. He was somebody who said, you know what? We have rights. We have things we want. We're being stopped and we're going to take it, whatever it costs. That's why he was in prison. That's Jesus, son of the father. But then there's Jesus of Nazareth. Now he stands before Pilate. He's, he's being threatened with death. And what did he talk about? He talked about the kingdom, God's kingdom, an invisible kingdom, a secret kingdom, one in which 
you lay down your life. In fact, he had actually used the image of the cross. He says, you have to take up your cross. You have to die to yourself to follow God. He talks about the blessedness of this life, but let's face it, it's a blessedness that comes only when you first hit your knees, when you humble yourself. And it's a blessedness that sometimes requires you to cut things out of your life that you can barely let go of. Remember how he talks about lopping off your right hand, plucking out your right eye, whatever you have to do to separate from sin? That's the Jesus who stood there. And the people, the people are faced with the decision. Which Jesus do you want? You want Barabbas or you want this Jesus who's called Messiah? And we just read the passage. You know who they chose. Give us Barabbas. Well, what do you want me to do with Jesus then? Crucify him. Why? What has he done? Crucify him. Can you imagine that? These people call out for him. Just a week before, people were celebrating his entrance in Jerusalem. Now they're crying out, crucify him. Pilate sees what's going on. He recognizes the injustice, but he's not going to try to stop it. So what does he do? He washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of the blood of this man. You see to it. And then they say, his blood is on us and on our children. And Jesus is set, released by Pilate to be flogged and crucified. That last statement by the crowd has reverberated through history. Sometimes it's translated not well, but frequently as let his blood be on us and our children. It sounds like a curse that the people are pronouncing on themselves. And there have been many people down through the centuries, people in the church, Christians, who have used that to suggest that the Jewish people are somehow under a curse. You may or may not be familiar with the history of anti-Semitism, but it is an ugly, ugly story. And it often goes back to this very verse. People are saying, these are the people who crucified Christ. These are the ones guilty of his blood. And there's a curse on them and their children. And this has been used. This has been used to persecute Jews down through history. It's a terrible, terrible story. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. If religious people can cry for Christ to be crucified, religious people can persecute the Jewish people from whom the Messiah came. Sin is an equal opportunity corrupter. But the problem here is this. Some people, because of that history, they read back into Matthew and anti-Judaism. That's the term that's used. They say, look at how Matthew depicts the Jewish leaders and this crowd of Jewish people crying for Jesus to be crucified. And look how Pilate's trying to get away from all this and trying to do right. He's making the Jews look terrible and the Romans look not so bad. And they say this is an anti-Judaism, even in Scripture. I wasn't sure whether to even bring that whole subject up, but you know what? If you ever watch PBS and some program of people talking about the, the New Testament, the Gospels, that you'll hear that statement often made. Oh, yes, Matthew is anti-Jewish. 
And that's where all the anti-Semitism began. That is so wrong on so many levels, I hardly know where to begin. I mean, after all, Matthew himself is Jewish. We all know, of course, Jesus was Jewish. The New Testament is a Jewish book. The early church was almost completely Jewish. And in fact, it was many years before anybody even talked about Christians. Christianity really is not a new religion. It is Judaism evolved in following Messiah Jesus. And it was, at least it was seen that way in the early, early years. And if you read the New Testament, you'll see Paul makes it very clear. You can read Romans chapter 11, that the Jewish people are still beloved of God, that he is still, in some sense, the chosen people. So this idea of anti-Judaism is nonsense. And it comes because the critics aren't reading Matthew theologically. They don't understand what he's saying to them. Because Matthew is not saying, oh, look at these Jewish, you know, people in the crowd crying out, crucify him. What a terrible people. That's not, what's, that's not what's working here. What's working here is these are the people of God. They're not the worst. They're the best of humanity. That's the point, you see. The Jews are descended from Abraham, the friend of God. They received Torah. They have shaped their lives around Torah. More than any people before them, and any people, even in our day, they have sought to live in a way that would honor and glorify God. They are a people who have received the grace of God. We've all received the grace of God, but that's just the point, see? The Jews in this story are not unique. They're us. They're us. They're us even at our best. It's theologically that we read this and understand it. There's nobody innocent here. Pilate's not innocent here. He can't just wash his hands and be done with it. The Romans aren't innocent. The Jews aren't innocent. You're not innocent, and I'm not. We are all guilty before God. There was a movie called The Passion of the Christ. It was produced and directed by Mel Gibson. And when it came out, there were some accusations that it too was anti-Jewish, as Matthew's gospel was. But the criticism misses the mark there just as it does with the gospel. Here's why. Here's why. Theologically, it's all of us who put Christ to the cross. And Gibson makes that clear in this scene. You see the hand of Jesus stretched out, you see another hand holding a nail, pressing it into the flesh. In a moment, a hammer is going to come down and drive that nail through the flesh of Jesus and into the wood. Do you see that hand with the nail? Whose hand is that? Do you know? That's Mel Gibson's hand. He said that he wanted to be part of that scene as an act of penitence. I don't know all the ins and outs of his life, but it hasn't been exactly the life of a choir boy. It says an act of penitence, because here's what he said. It was my sin that put Christ on the cross. 
And that's the thing we need to see in this passage. It's not about any particular people. It's about all people, even the best of people, even people blessed of God as we've all been blessed of God. What do we do? In our unbelief, in our darkness, we turn away from God and we sin. And we, the Son of God spills his blood on Calvary in this outrage of justice. So what do you expect? What do you expect? His blood is spilled. What do you expect? His blood cries out for revenge, does it not? Cries out for justice, or so we would think. And it's then that we encounter what you could call the irony of redemption. It's this, this unexpected turn of things because the blood of Christ is spilled in this terrible miscarriage of justice, this obscene blasphemous attack upon the Son of God himself. His blood is spilled, and that blood cleanses us from all sin. That in the very act of crucifying Christ, God, using that act, works redemption for sinners like us, sinners who put Christ to the cross. That's an astonishing truth, isn't it? That's the irony of the whole gospel, that life comes out of death and light comes out of darkness and hope comes out of despair and God's saving grace comes out of our worst sins. It's an amazing story. Have any of you read any of J.R.R. Tolkien's books? Any of you? I bet you've seen the movies, right? You've seen the movies. Tolkien is one of the great writers of the 20th century, and he himself was a Christian. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, Tolkien was one of those who helped C.S. Lewis come to Christian faith. In a letter to a friend, he coined a term that has since been taken up into literary criticism. The term is eucatastrophe. Sometimes people think of it as a happy ending, but it's more than a happy ending. You know what the word catastrophe means. Well, carrying over the Greek sense in the English, the EU there stands for good. We're talking about a good catastrophe, okay? So Tolkien is talking about a good catastrophe, and what, he, what he's referring to is how in a story things can be going wrong and everything is moving toward a disastrous outcome. There is evil and there is suffering and darkness is about to win. And then, and then there can be a turn, surprising, unexpected, even unbelievable, a turn in which the darkness itself becomes light, in which the evil is somehow turned and becomes good. It is a catastrophe that turns good. It is a eucatastrophe. And Tolkien said the finest, purest example of that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He talks about it in an essay he wrote in 1947 on fairy stories. But it really applies to the resurrection. Jesus Christ crucified is a catastrophe, but a good one, because through his death, 
we find life. That's a tremendous truth. And you know what that means? It means, please hear me now, it doesn't matter what you've done. Our sins sent Christ to the cross. Whatever our sins, it sent Christ to the cross. So it really doesn't matter what you've done. And it doesn't matter what darkness you have in your life right now. There is nothing between you and God, nothing as an obstacle between you and God. Your life might be a catastrophe, but there is nothing between you and God. Any problem there is, is inside you. It's not between you and God, it's in you. It's a resistance in your heart. That's all it is. So it doesn't matter what you're into or the decisions you made, it flat out doesn't matter. You are no further from God because of it, because the only thing holding you back is that resistance, because Christ, through his blood, has atoned for our sins. That's an amazing story, but it does call us to decision. What Jesus are we looking for? You know, a lot of people are looking for a Jesus that'll give them what they want, you know, where I can get what I want, and he'll help me get it. But that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. That Jesus, that Jesus calls us to leave everything behind and follow him. Now, we're not going to be saved because we do that, but we have to own him as our Lord and Savior. That's it. Give up that resistance, and then we're united with him. What a story that is. This, this eucatastrophe, this, this disaster that is reversed, and it gives hope to every one of us. The thing about God, and this is the thing that's amazing, so it's not just that God can bring good out of bad. God will use the bad to bring about the good. Sometimes even our sins and certainly our failures, God will turn and use for good. So your life isn't a disaster. It isn't. Not, not if you turn your faith to Jesus Christ. There's no darker day than that day that he was condemned by Pilate. No darker day than that. But that was the beginning of our salvation. And you can be saved today. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are astonished by your grace, your grace that not only overcomes our sin, but Lord, somehow reverses it, somehow turns it into the joy that Tolkien speaks of. Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with that joy of redemption. Lord, that though we have sinned and sinned often, Lord, the irony is that we can sing and rejoice as people who are saved. Lord, not because we're faithful, but because you're faithful. And we pray that you would fill us and that you'd work in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.